Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello again, my friend, and welcome in to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast, this monthly look at all things streaming and movies, television, and music. Man, we've got a lot to choose from these days, don't we? I mean, it's the perfect time for a pandemic like this to hit. I just can't imagine. Like, this has been hellish enough for us, but can you imagine going through this thing back when they had the influenza, you know, pandemic of, what was it, like 1918? I mean, you think you have absolutely nothing to do right now? Try going through it back then. I mean, not only do they not have Hulu, they don't even, no one has a television. It's not even around yet. Radio was still, I mean, kind of considered a, a hot new form of technology. So, I mean, without that, I mean, and books, and I don't, I just, I don't even know how they got through the boredom that they had to have been facing back then because really they've got all the same kind of, restrictions as we do in place right now except their worlds were a lot smaller back then than ours are today even though ours feel like completely claustrophobic and closed off at this point we do have a lot of choices a lot of things to access and look i mean you get this show to listen to for free every month uh and we enjoy bringing it to you i am clint davis i sit in my closet in beautiful columbus ohio and uh, give you my takes on movies and television streaming out there while my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, comes to you from his home in Cleveland where he talks to you about music every month here on the show. We appreciate you joining us as always. Always glad to hear from you guys as well. If you want to hit me up on Instagram, I am there at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. I'm on Twitter at that handle as well. Andy is on Instagram at Andy Sedlak. And uh, it's Andy the usual way, and then S-E-D-L-A-K, if you want to find out what he is up to. I'll tell you what's really weird is that my movie watching has actually gone down lately in the pandemic. And I think the real reason why, now every week at least, I still watch probably three movies a week. But that's way down from like a year ago at this point. I was watching like a movie a night almost. Um, and I ran down for you the numbers of how many movies I watched last year earlier this year in a little, you know, segment of self-indulgence. 
that was kind of rare for this show, but still, uh, it, it was just kind of to show you how much I'm I'm engaging in this stuff, how much I'm watching it, and to show you, uh, try to give you a little bit more of my credentials on why you should uh, care at all about what I think about uh, movies, especially out there, and, and television, just by how much I, I uh, engage with them on a nightly basis. But lately, my movie watching has kind of decreased, and I don't really know why... I wouldn't have known why that was, except for I've been playing a lot more video games uh, than I was probably a year ago. And I, I've been finding them to be a better coping mechanism with everything that's going on and, you know, with the isolation and everything. And the video games just pass the time so much faster. And the stories in video games now are so much more engaging than they used to be that a lot of times they can feel just as good as a great movie if you're talking about the absolute best ones anyway. And uh, those have been kind of helping me get through more, but it has cut down on my movie watching uh, extremely here in the last few months, which is weird because I would have thought when this kicked off that I, I would have been like watching more movies than ever. And now, I mean, we've got HBO Max, which I raved about a couple episodes ago and I've been spending even more time with. Um, and I just am not watching. And, and there's a huge movie selection on there is what is why I even brought it up. But between Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and uh, HBO Max alone, and those are the four that I always give you streaming recommendations on specifically at the end of the show, uh, between those four alone, you have just such a massive library of movies that's ever-changing and covers so many different eras and different genres. And um, that I mean, this is really, it's a great time to be locked inside with a lot of movies on your watch list because there's so many ways to get to them. Um, but I just haven't been watching movies nearly as much as I was a year ago at this point or a couple years ago at this point or whatever. Like any point in my life, this is kind of the least movies I've been watching. But every week we do watch a movie with uh, my son. Every Friday night we try to anyway. If he takes a nap, we tell him we can watch, he'll, he gets to watch a movie. And so we usually watch like a, a movie on Disney Plus or something. Um, and we've been kind of going back, Beth and I, and picking out some of the ones that we loved from childhood and seeing how he'll enjoy them. And uh, he typically likes the ones that have a little bit more action, a little less dialogue. So, I mean, he's kind of disappointing me in that way at this point. I don't know when I'm going to be able to break him into the Criterion Collection movies at this rate. It might be a while. But, uh, no, it's been a lot of fun to go back and, and watch some of those movies. We just watched The Rescuers Down Under again. And that was one that I loved when I was a kid. Beth loved it when she was a kid as well. We bonded on that movie like when we first started dating because I always thought it was kind of this obscure movie. It was known as a big box office failure. But when I was a kid, I wore that VHS out. It was one of my absolute favorites. Uh, and it's just such an intense, like so much action in it. And there's so it's such a great villain with George C. Scott doing the voice. Not that I cared about that when I was a kid, but he was just nasty. And uh, the animals in it were beautifully drawn, and I just thought the world of the, the little mice and the, the world that they inhabited right under us without us knowing it was just so cool and so imaginative. And Beth had loved that movie, too. So we showed him The Rescuers Down Under, and he really liked it. So I was, I was pretty thrilled about that. It was fun to go back and rewatch it. But, yeah, I've been having fun watching some kids' movies lately that I hadn't seen in a while. Uh, and so those have been some of my biggest movies that I've been watching and I've been spending a lot of my free time still watching TV a lot but also playing video games as I said. Alright, usually at the start of the show here on the Stream Police, if you're a long time listener, you know that I like to light up a stogie to start the show. It's kind of what I always do. It's how I set the mood here in my closet. 
but I haven't been doing it since this uh, COVID-19 pandemic really took off like back in March. So again, I'm not going to do it until everything kind of gets under wraps because I just feel like it's a slap in the face to the people who really are trying to breathe. And uh, just so happens that obviously struggling to breathe is a, a major point of contention in the Black Lives Matter movement as well and the defund the police movement. So out of solidarity with them as well, I'm going to not smoke a stogie for right now either. So we'll just have to move on without the stogies. Maybe I could light some incense or something. Maybe that would help set the mood a little bit better as well. Get out the Nag Champa or something. But one thing that hasn't changed in 56 now consecutive episodes of the Stream Police podcast is me giving you another entry into the canon of the greatest TV show theme songs of all time. Because so many of the great shows that we've loved over the years have had amazing theme songs. We've covered shows uh, from all kinds of genres. We've covered shows that weren't even really shows at all, but were something else entirely. We've kind of covered it all here on the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And for this month's entry into that great Hall of Fame that is still waiting to be built, I'm still waiting for a GoFundMe to happen so I can build the Hall of Fame for TV show theme songs, we're only about $20 million away from the uh, uh, from our hitting our fundraising goal. So hit, hit up a GoFundMe, and uh, I'm waiting for you guys to set the dollars rolling in so we can get this the, the foundation uh, laid out so I can get my giant scissors out and cut the ribbon here in a few years. But anyway, until then, I'll just continue to keep throwing in new entries into the Hall of Fame. This month's entry is one that I know you're going to know right from the first few notes. And I say that a lot here in this segment, but that's because it's such a key point, I think. A theme song's got to be short. It's got to be right to the point. It's got to tell you what it's all about. It's got to keep your attention. It's got to get you locked in. You know, maybe you've never seen the show. The theme song can be a nice way into the show, especially back in the older days it used to be. And with this one, I don't know how you could hear the first few notes of this song and not immediately stop everything you're doing. Even if you are on the way to the bathroom right as the song gets ready to play, I think you will stand and wait and hold it no matter how extreme it is. When you hear the opening to this, the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. since 1989 those have been the opening notes every time you tune in to watch Monday Night Football and when you hear that song the Monday Night Football theme song I'm guessing that you, don't you just imagine it was written like like Vince Lombardi himself brought down the score of this, you know, like when the night of the first Super Bowl, the AFL-NFL championship game, when he stomped down the Kansas City Chiefs. Don't you imagine that, like, as he was celebrating with the Packers or, or as he led them out onto the field, he was carrying in his arm not only the clipboard with the, you know, the drawn-up game plan for that game, but also in the other arm he had the folder with the sheet music for this song that he had just composed, like, in the locker room right before they came out isn't that how you imagine the origin of this tune coming to be well it couldn't be further from the truth (music) 
this song actually has a name, and it's not called the Monday Night Football theme song. I had always assumed that this song was written for Monday Night Football, and I didn't know how old it was. It's one of those songs that just sounds like it's it's been around since the first football game ever was played by like the Dayton Triangles back in the early 1900s. Since the guys in the Ivy League were like beating each other up with leather, uh, you know, a one-inch piece of leather on top of their heads, I just imagined this song playing. Like back when the galloping ghost Red Grange was taking the field. Like this was in his head. He was humming this as he was out there playing. But this song is actually not really that old in the context of football. This song has been around since 1970, and the name of it is Heavy Action. And it was composed by a guy named Johnny Pearson. my friend that Johnny Pearson is British. Yes, this song was written by a British guy and it was actually it was written for a television show that the BBC did called Superstars, which was some kind of like competition show where they have great they had great athletes from different sports competing against each other like in sports that were not their own so it was kind of this weird campy show but this was the song that opened it and it was this tune called heavy action and in 1973 uh that show kind of debuted but the show was actually very popular in britain and it was around from 1973 to 1985 so people in britain know this song really well from it being the theme song to Superstars. But then ABC, when they developed Monday Night Football, they bought the rights to Heavy Action to be the opening for their Monday Night Football program. But they actually wouldn't even end up using it as the opening until 1989. And that was when it debuted as the theme song proper for the legendary Monday Night Football. Of course, people also think of Monday Night Football, they think of the Hank Williams Jr. theme song, you know, All My Rowdy Friends Are Coming Here Over for Monday Night, or whatever the hell it's called. His version of All My Rowdy Friends Are Coming Over Tonight, where he says, are you ready for some football? And that song's fine, but Hank Williams Jr. just, in general, kind of gets on my nerves for a lot of reasons. So I'm not celebrating that song nearly as much as I think Heavy Action really, to me, is the theme song for Monday Night Football. It is immortal. It will never sound old. It will never sound bad. And it will never sound, to me, like anything but football. So if you're British, I'm sorry to say that. But this is this song is football to my ears. And when I hear it, I just get a smile on my face and know that uh, even though Monday Night Football has kind of blown for the last few years, just a revolving door of announcers, uh, the games haven't been very good lately. Uh, you know, Sunday Night Football has kind of usurped it as the the primetime game of the, of the week. But Monday Night Football is still an event. It's still something I watch religiously. I don't even care who's playing. I watch it pretty much every time. And I love this song. <laughs>
that, my friend, is our 56th entry into the canon of the great TV show theme songs ever, Heavy Action by Johnny Pearson, a 1970s classic that joined the ranks of Monday Night Football in 1989 and has been played on there ever since. And I hope it's played on there evermore. I hope I'm dead by the time they stop using Heavy Action as the theme song for Monday Night Football because, I mean, it'll be a cold day in hell when this isn't the opener for Monday Night Football. Uh, So there it is. That's this month's edition of the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Don't you like that the song is called Heavy Action? Doesn't that sound like the name of a really bad, like a porn movie that they would have produced on uh, like a season of HBO's The Deuce or something? I mean, that just sounds really bad. Heavy Action, especially when you know it was written in the early 70s. It all just kind of goes together. But man, it's a great, great tune. I did not know all that history. I had no idea that this song came from some British dude who probably had never watched American football in his life and certainly was not writing a song with the uh, goal of it being used for the most iconic brand in American football for the next, you know, 40 years. It's just crazy. So I always like to ask you guys, what is getting you through this brutal, brutal period? And uh, I, I welcome your answers. All the time. I don't care how embarrassing they are. I don't care how silly you may think they are. I'm not judging. I'm not going to get on here and critique them. Um, I just want to know what's getting you through. What are you watching? There's so many options out there now. So many new shows still coming out that have been you know, in production for years and that have finally uh, been coming out. But I just want to know what you're watching. New, old, movie, television. Uh, what are you playing? I, I mean, I don't care. Whatever it is. I want to know. What's getting you through? Is it a live stream? Is it the Adult Swim channels that I raved about a few months ago here on the show and talked about them being perfect for when you had lonely nights where you were looking for some human connection? I think uh, those those are great for that. Uh, so what's getting you through? Email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. T-H-E Clint Davis at gmail.com. What's been getting me through this month? It changes month to month for me. But what has been getting me through this month? I told you Mad Men was helping me last time. I've been rewatching it, and it is still helping me greatly. I'm uh, into the third season now once again, and just still one of the greatest shows ever. This show was just on fire, like from from the start of season two through like season five, especially just on fire. Not a bad, really not a bad note hit. Um, just amazing character explorations and. Uh, got a message from one of our uh, great listeners, Matt, who told me that uh, based on me talking about it last month, that he's been, you know, wanting to give Mad Men a try anyway, and he's thinking about getting into it now, especially with uh, me talking about it again. And I, I just couldn't recommend it more. I-, I never understand when somebody tells me they don't like Mad Men. It's one of those shows that I just don't. I don't see how you couldn't love it because it is just so well done on every. Respect. I mean, I could see if you're one of those people who you like 24 is like your favorite show and that's the kind of thing you, you are into, then you're not going to really dig Mad Men because there's no action. I mean, people aren't getting killed in it. 
Um, it's not a show about crime. And I think there's so many shows about crime. Crime has been, just been done to death on TV. And for this to be such a juicy show that has nothing to do with a criminal element, um, and for it to really just go into its characters the hard way, uh, it just blows me away. So I'm, I'm still just loving my rewatch of Mad Men. That is really helping me get through. Also, the NFL being back, huge for me. I'm one of, I'm a huge NFL fan. I don't care who's playing. It's one of the, it's like the only sport where I will watch. It, well, NBA is kind of the same way. I will watch any NBA game mostly. There are some shitty ones that you don't want to watch, but NFL, it doesn't. It really does not matter who's playing. I will watch every game that's on. I don't care who's in it. Uh, I just love the product. I think it looks great on TV. I think it's just it, it just is a great way to melt the hours away, and uh, it's fun. And and this year I don't have to feel so bad about watching it. Like last couple of years, I felt horrible watching the NFL. Like I was selling a, a piece of my soul every time I watched it because of just the way that it had sold out Colin Kaepernick and the league had just constantly been embarrassing and shitting on its black players and its retired players and its. Uh, you know, not giving black coaches a shot and, and black uh, staff members and, and other personnel jobs. And uh, don't even get me started on ownership. It's just a bad, there's a lot of bad things in the NFL still. But at least now they're finally admitting some wrongdoing and, and trying to back their black players a little bit more and trying to get out there on social issues a little bit more instead of acting like they don't exist. So... I I feel a little more clean watching the NFL this year uh, than I have in years past. So that's getting me through as well. I've also been watching a um, anime series that I've really been liking on Hulu uh, called Elfin Leet, and it's actually spelled Elfin Lied, L-I-E-D, uh, and Elfin is E-L-F-E-N, and I just kind of fell upon this show. I, it had showed up on some lists when I was looking for like recommendations for m- more kind of like mature anime and stuff that had you know wasn't really like the typical like high school kids getting in trouble kind of things that a lot of anime shows are about or high school romances and stuff like that. I wanted to see something a little bit more gritty, and so this one was on there, and it, it's a really intense shows very sad it's very dark um and it is violent and gory as all hell i mean it's got some of the just most shocking violence i've ever seen done in an animated program of any kind uh but it's about like this it's even it's hard to even explain but it's a sci-fi show it's about these I guess they're humans that are born with horns coming out of their head and they have these almost superpowers that are granted to them by these extra invisible arms that grow out of their body. I mean, it sounds insane when I'm describing it, but it really works in the show the way they build it into the lore. And so, like, there's this secret program to kill all of them when they're children to not let them get older because they're worried that they'll dominate the human you know, the, the human species basically, because they're so strong. And so like, un, you just can't defeat them once they get older. Uh, and of course one of them escapes in the beginning of the show and the rest of it is them kind of trying to hunt this girl down. And, uh, she's just like one of the ultimate ass kickers. So it's a cool show. It's got uh, a lot going on, but it's like 13 episodes total. I think the whole thing is on Hulu. Um, and I'm almost at the end now, but I've been enjoying that again. It's called Elf and Leet. And, uh, I've been, like I said, playing video games, I've been playing Death Stranding lately and having a lot of fun with that, loving that game. It's been, it's been a blast. So anyway, that's kind of what I've been doing. 
But once again, another thing getting me through is just HBO Max. I've really been loving this sheer breadth of content. There's almost too much there. But one show I did get into, I started and finished its first season since the last time we spoke, is Perry Mason, the new uh, updated reboot prequel version of Perry Mason uh, that HBO has decided to do itself. And this show had a lot of kind of behind-the-scenes, backstage, uh, not drama, but but issues before it, it took off, and that was really related to the fact that Robert Downey Jr., who's a, a producer on this show, he was supposed to star as Perry Mason. But I guess he couldn't do it at like the last minute. Some scheduling issue came up. So anyway, Robert Downey Jr. backs out of starring in it. He still maintains his producer credit. And they instead get Matthew Reese who was in one of my all-time favorite shows, The Americans, um, and he is playing Perry Mason now. And I think that the casting change could not be more drastic. I mean, I, I think about these two actors are so different from each other in so many different ways. And uh, not just the fact that Matthew Reese is, what is he, from Wales, I think, um, that he is you know, known as kind of this soft-spoken guy when he's off off, uh, you know, behind the scenes, and he's got this really strong Welsh accent when he's speaking normally, uh, when he's not in character. So he's just a totally different. And Robert Downey Jr. is known as kind of this really boisterous, you know, I mean, bad boy. His reputation back in the day, um, you know, a star for pretty much his entire life, uh, and uh, he's just not a guy. It's totally different, and I think their ways of playing the character would have been totally different. And I try to imagine Downey playing this part now after I've watched the show, and I think. I, I'm not sure. I think it actually might have been better um, just because I think the star power he would have brought to it would have made this more of an event. It would have made the whole thing feel even bigger. But Reese does a really good job as the title role here. So anyway, Perry Mason, if you don't know anything about it, and I never watched the old Perry Mason. You're talking about an old show now, like 1960s television show. So this is not something that was a lot of people are going to remember really watching certainly not new when it was on, uh, who are going to be watching this show. So I think they were making it for a new audience and anyone who's going into it, like expecting a, um, you know, a, a remake of that original beloved show. And it was a beloved show and it was very acclaimed back in its day and highly rated. Uh, they were just going to be, um, left out in the cold right at the start because this is first off, it's HBO. And this show is graphic in every single way it's set in the 1930s um it's set like right during prohibition and so it's kind of got like that boardwalk empire kind of look to it the show looks fantastic but this this show is set in la so it really reminds me a lot like the aesthetic that it reminds me of is chinatown every time i i'm watching this i'm thinking of chinatown and chinatown of course itself was based on, and the look of it, Roman Polanski gave it the look and sound of like the old uh, Humphrey Bogart movies where he's in California, like the Maltese Falcon kind of thing, uh, John Huston movies. Um, he gave it that kind of a deal where it's like the California detective thing, and it just has that vibe to it uh, and that look to it. And this show looks really good, and it just ha embodies that whole kind of neo-noir feeling 
um, uh, in the California setting, which I like a lot more than the New York setting, I think, when I'm talking about this kind of story. There's just something about it. It's just a little bit more laid back, and uh, it, it doesn't feel like it's trying so hard as some of the New York stuff does to be gritty and be in your face. But, um, I mean, L.A. is a town with such an interesting history and so much more, uh, I think, creative ground as far as what you can have your characters doing in their background than New York even is just because New York was always so established by the time these shows take place even in the 1930s New York's reputation was so established but California was still kind of coming into its own uh, and was still seen as a place where dreams could come true and all that kind of stuff you get just a lot more romantic I think when you set the story in California and that's what you get in Perry Mason but anyway the character of Perry Mason was this defense attorney who was this brilliant defense lawyer. He was he would get people off on the craziest, like tons of evidence against them. Like he was pretty much like Johnny Cochran, but he was getting off like good guys, people who actually were innocent, but they had all this uh, evidence against them and the system was trying to break them down and he was getting them off because he was a good guy and he was just smart and, and a brilliant lawyer. And that was the basically the whole point of the original show. In this show, when you meet Perry Mason, he's like a basically a piece of shit. He's kind of like broke. He lives on this crappy family farm with these emaciated cows. Um, it's just a sad like he wears really shabby clothes. He's taking like sleazy jobs that'll pay him whatever. He's just working as a freelance like private eye pretty much. But he takes jobs sometimes for this old attorney who's kind of like a father figure to him who's played by John Lithgow. And they're working together and, and Lithgow ends up stumbling upon basically this case that can be like the case of the century. And what it is is um, a young couple had their like infant son. He's not even, you know, he's not even a year old. He's a few months old. Their infant son kidnapped from them and then he was murdered. And uh, it was this whole shocking thing. The kid's eyes were left sewn open. And it's all explained why, you know, when you watch the show. But it was this horrible thing. It's a, it's a terrible case. And so the parents are getting blamed. And, and the mom is the one who eventually ends up being put on trial for the murder and kidnapping of her own child. Um, and so Mason and his attorney mentor, uh, played by John Lithgow, they have to get him off. And a lot of things happen, you know, between here and there. And eventually Mason ends up, through a lot of twists and turns, becoming a lawyer himself. So it does settle into, so it ends up being like a prequel to the original Perry Mason. But they've picked this up for a second season, so it's not just going to end where it is. I guess we're going to go further into this and figure out some more new cases. But I really did like this show. I liked my time with it. It felt adult, and it didn't feel silly at all uh it felt very like gritty and intense and that's definitely what they were going for uh but it wasn't laughable and i man i gotta tell you i thought it was like stomach churning at times as far as the gore and the uh the practical effects they would do on the the, the dead bodies that they were investigating um like one guy who shot himself with a shotgun um they show this body in graphic detail and it was really gruesome it was like uh, you know something like game of thrones made a lot of noise on social media because you know the stuff that they would show was so gr grim and you think about uh, especially like 
you know, what happened to the Viper when the mountain and the Viper met in the ring. Um, that was one of the grossest things anyone had ever seen on TV. And Perry Mason has a lot of that kind of stuff going on, and it's got a lot of graphic nudity, sex, uh, tons of bad language. It's just, and really mature themes. And you're talking about the murder of a, an infant as the main crime here. So it's really all very dark and grim. Um, and this is just this, this is kind of the whole atmosphere of the show. And it's, you know, the depression's coming and like I said, prohibitions enacted. So it's just kind of a shitty time. So you think that what we're living in is a bad time. This was a pretty rough time to be around as well. And Mason is kind of a sad sack a little bit at the beginning, um, but ends up lightening up a little bit and finding some real purpose as the show goes on. But I really was hooked from minute one. I, and, and I was surprised because when I, uh, Andy was actually the one who, um, you know, showed me this show or got me interested in the show to begin with, uh, because he said something about its trailer and said he was excited about it. And I hadn't really thought about it much or heard about it. Um, and then I was like, yeah, this sounds great. And, and I got into it. And then I asked him what he thought about it, if he had watched it. And he said that he watched it a couple episodes and didn't really like it that much. So I was very surprised by that because it really seemed like it was going to be up his alley. He's a big lover of uh, detective cinema, of noir cinema, and um, especially of the Bogart kind of stuff. And this really has that dripping off of it, but it's a more you know modern approach to it. Uh, but the look is spot on, and I just it grabbed me right from the first minute. Like I was I was binging episodes, and I'm not usually big on that. I'm not usually big on ripping through a season in like a few days. But I did that. I think it was 13 episodes in the first season, and I was done like in a week. So it was pretty fast for me. Um, and w- one of the things I really loved about this first season of Perry Mason was the music. I thought it would just nailed it with the the little lonely trumpet sound with the mute on it. Um, and these kind of like long wailing notes, it all just sounded really good. And it, it just, derivative, sure, definitely derivative. I'm not going to say that I thought this show was really original in many ways. I don't think it was at all. And, and, and I mean, what can you expect when it's a show that's lifting a character that's so well known in television history as Perry Mason? How can you expect it to be really original and reinvent the wheel? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a detective show. Set in California in the 1930s, starring a white guy detective. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, it's derivative. It definitely is. And the music even is as well, and the look is as well. But I thought it was all done well, and it felt big budget, and it felt like HBO. Like, it didn't feel like this should be on another network. Sometimes you watch an HBO show, and you're going, what the hell were they thinking? Like, this is not HBO. It's not up to HBO snuff. But I thought Perry Mason was, as far as its look. It just its writing, uh, the way that all of it was done, production values were just phenomenal. I thought it looked like a million bucks. So uh, I was impressed, and it kept me hooked all the way through. The I will knock it on a few things. I thought it tried to do way too much in this first season, just way, way too much in setting up uh, these characters, and it tried to sell. It tried to tell too many stories. I thought we could have gotten into the main characters, there's probably four main characters that you really need to know about. And that would be, uh, Perry himself. That would be Della street, who is Perry's, uh, assistant, uh, officer Drake, who is, uh, an LAPD officer who ends up, 
you know, helping Mason and basically being his investigator. And I would probably say fourth, you would really need to know about Lithgow's character. Those would be the four really important characters that you need to to really get to know a lot during this first season. Well, and also uh, the woman who is up on trial for her life. It's important that you get to know her and that you feel for her. But there are a lot of other characters that are thrown in here that we don't really need to see. And at the top of that list is a character played by, it pains me to say this, one of my favorite actors uh, in recent television history, the great Tatiana Maslany, the Emmy winner from Orphan Black, which is a show I've raved about nonstop on this show if you've, if you've been listening to it for a while. Uh, and Tatiana Maslany can basically do no wrong in my mind. And she was very good in Perry Mason, but her whole character and the whole storyline with her and Lily Taylor as her mom, she plays, uh, Maslany plays like this radio evangelist who is very overzealous and very popular uh, in California and has grown this kind of massive mega church back in the 30s on the radio. And people really like worship her. And and it's this whole thing of, well, is she really like, does she really believe the stuff she's saying or is she just trying to make money? And there's this dynamic between her and her mom that's very tense. And so it's, it's kind of their whole storyline. I just didn't really, it didn't do much for me. And I didn't, find it necessary at all so I thought it was very distracting and it just took away from what was supposed to be the story and I think it took away from being able to develop characters like Della and like Officer Drake uh, as much as we really could have developed them so I I thought the story just kind of pulled in too many directions and I will say that the um, mystery itself was pretty well done and, and it wasn't like a big disappointment when you found out what happened, which uh, can be a big problem when it's a big murder mystery. But this show wasn't really about the murder mystery. It was, it was all the time about, well, how is Mason going to do the work he needs to do to get this woman uh, a, you know, a real day in court because everyone kind of wants to see her hanged uh, because of everything that the prosecutor's office is doing to smear her name in public. So there's a lot of like modern issues that are being, um, toyed with in this show, uh, like manipulation of the media, and uh, I mean, total sexism, double standards, misogyny, patriarchy, all that stuff is kind of dealt with in this show a little bit. Um, and but it's it's kind of all just touched on a little bit. Like it's not it's not deep. It's not like the way Mad Men goes into it. It's all just kind of, yeah. It sucked back then for women, especially. It was really, it was bad. And it sucked for black people back then, too, as well. That's kind of the way you feel. You know, you're not, you're not like left shaking with anger uh, over these injustices. You're kind of just like, yeah, that's what they're telling me. They're telling me that it wasn't a very nice time to be a woman or to be gay or to be black back in the 1930s. It was a, a time that was definitely, you know, it was better to be a white guy, but even for them, it kind of sucked too. So it's just not like none of that stuff is very hard hitting in the way they tackle it on this show. But the things that I will recommend to you about Perry Mason, if you like atmosphere and if you like, uh, detective courtroom kind of, especially courtroom stuff, cause there's, there are some really good courtroom scenes in this, um, then give it a watch. I think you'll like it because it's really well done. Like the production values, as I said, really, really well done. I think it's a show that can only get better as it goes on. So I'm excited to see another season because I don't think it hit its peak at all in this first season. I think it's got a lot of room to grow 
but I like what they did with the characters. I, I like the actors that are playing them. Uh, a couple of them were not really that well known to me. Uh, but Matthew Reese was very good. But I, I just can't stop thinking about Robert Downey Jr. and uh, how he would have done in this role. I think it would have made the whole thing just even more interesting. Talk about making it feel like a million bucks. Just having him there would have been crazy because I just don't think of him as a TV actor. But alas, it wasn't meant to happen. And Reese does a very, very good job here. Uh, you know, but Matthew Reese is an understated actor. And uh, maybe that's what you need when you when you play a part like Perry Mason. So I, I liked it though. I was I was definitely into it. I don't know that it's one of those shows that's going to go down as like one of the all-time HBO greats, but they don't all need to be that way. And sometimes HBO, it's great for them to just have a show that you know is going to come out every year and is going to tell you a solid story. And I think this show with its, you know, every year, it, maybe it, it hits a case or two, like a crazy case or two. I don't really like the idea of a whole season being devoted to one case. That to me is a little bit... It wears a little thin when you're doing 13 episodes on one case. I mean, you got to have some really, really sharp writing and really unique, uh, you know, interesting angles and twists and turns that you're going to have it go uh, to be able to fill that out. That's where you get you need the kind of upper tier writing that you see on something like The Night Of. If you're going to do one case and make it interesting for an entire season, I don't think Perry Mason was able to do that here. So I would like to see them hit more, maybe one one case like every couple episodes or something like that. I don't think they need to do a whole season on a case unless they come up with something truly uh, unique and juicy and, and crazy with the twists. But it's just good to have an HBO do a show that looks good, sounds good, feels good, and it comes out every year and you can count on it. Because a lot of their shows, they just have these crazy release schedules. You don't know when they're going to come out. Um, and they're just too wild. So it's uh, I think this could be a steady piece of content for them as long as they can afford to produce it because it really does look expensive. Expensive as hell. But man, every scene when they're in the morgue, during this show, I have never seen the morgue done funnier than on Perry Mason. I was laughing out loud every scene when they're in the morgue. Uh, the guy who plays the county coroner was just absolutely brilliant. He was probably my favorite part of the entire show. But anyway, the first season of uh, Perry Mason is streaming for you right now on HBO Max if you want to check it out. it's uh, I, I enjoyed it. I think, I think you'll like it if you like this kind of thing, if you like detective stuff, if you like period stuff, if you like Chinatown. It's one of my all-time favorite movies, and I think it's one of the reasons I liked Perry Mason so much, because it's lifting a lot of its look and its sound from Chinatown. And hey, if you're going to rip a movie off, why not rip off Chinatown? It's a good one to do. All right, I'm going to pass things over to Andy. I'm going to sit back and take a drink, and let's see what he's been listening to. And I'll come back, and I'll tell you what the best thing I watched this month was, a British movie that really just grabbed me, man, grabbed me hard. And some movies now streaming on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and HBO Max that I recommend you check out. All that coming up in just a bit. Take it away, Mr. Sedlak. Hold up. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there. I want to thank you for joining us again this month. It's so good to have you. And I don't know why, but I just could not get into Perry Mason. I just, it, it bothers me. I expected to like it, wanted to like it. I have no answers. Uh, my name is Andy Sedlak, and I'm the music guy around here. Uh, my mission is to shock and rock you, or maybe just to pass the time. That's okay, too. I want to remind you to please rate and uh, review us. If you do like this podcast, we don't want any charity, um, but good, honest feedback would be appreciated. The more ratings we have, the more visibility we get, and uh, you know, we move one inch closer to quitting our day jobs. Please rate. Please review. All right, let's get on with it. Get on with it. Today, I'm going to be talking about musicians and their alter egos. Their alter egos, aliases, monikers, an alternative state of mind. We are not talking about people who merely change their names. Like when Robert Zimmerman became Bob Dylan, or when Reginald Dwight became Elton John. No. We're talking about people who use alter egos to fuel the creative process. Not every musician has an alter ego, of course. But many of them pretend to be someone else in order to create art that is outside of the box in order to do something they wouldn't normally do. We'll be talking about Beyonce, David Bowie, David Johansson, Garth Brooks, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, and Nora Jones. Nora Jones? Yep. Nora Jones. Sometimes these alter egos worked and sometimes they did not. And some of them, some of them are just a little weird. And that's kind of fun too. So where do we start? I suppose you have to start with Beyonce. Her alter ego, Sasha Fierce. So, 
Like, when you're getting ready to go on stage and perform, does Sasha Fierce, when does she show up? Usually when I hear the crowd, when I yeah. put on my stilettos, um, when, like, the, the moment right before when you're nervous and, and that other thing kind of takes over for you. Uh-huh. Then Sasha Fierce appears in my posture and, and the way I speak and everything is different. It's kind of like when I do a movie, becoming the character, once you put on the wig and once yeah. you put on the clothes, you walk different. Yeah. It's, it's kind of this character that I've, I've created over the years. A character that she created over the years. A character. It's interesting that she describes it that way. Think about why you would create an alter ego. To get out of a rut or to get out from being stuck, to give yourself a nudge. Because you can hit a wall at any time. You can run out of ideas at any point, whether you are working your way up or after you have found success. It can knock you down at any time. Now, when it comes to Beyonce, she's had a lot of luck with what she calls this character. She named a whole album after this character. It came out in 2008 called I Am Sasha Fierce. Did pretty well. Sold over 10 million copies. That was the first time she put a name on the process. She was doing up-tempo music. So she, she labeled it first for herself and then she marketed it. That's also an important part <laughs> of many alter egos that we will talk about today. So who is Sasha Fierce? Well... When you hear single ladies, think of Sasha Fierce. We all get wrapped up in who we are. It's an essential part of being alive. Even if we don't totally figure it out, we all want to identify... What is essential to our core? We want to know what is essential to our core. Artists, artists are restless people. And that's why they get into art, to try to harness some of this control over their restlessness. Or to maybe to, to channel their restlessness. But humans being humans... Like you're always tempted to keep one eye on your core. So creating an alter ego distances yourself from the core of your being. It's a break between you and your own experiences. Creating a new persona that doesn't have your memories or your opinions, maybe not even your politics. And isn't that fun? Isn't that freeing? Can you see why it appeals to the artists among us? The basic question is this. If you aren't weighing yourself down with you, what do you do? What do you do? That's the crux of an alter ego. Many years ago, I named my alter ego Sasha. And it's something that stuck. I feel like Sasha is a big treat for my fans. Um, it's definitely exciting being able to have an excuse to be so over the top. I try to keep Sasha on the stage. I absolutely keep Sasha on the stage. And now she has a last name. She's Sasha Fierce. Beyonce's alter ego is a healthy one. It helps her get out of her comfort zone. 
They're not all healthy, even if they are successful. That brings me to David Bowie. David Bowie had several alter egos. Aladdin Sane, The Thin White Duke, Ziggy Stardust. Ziggy is the most famous, and if you've never seen a picture of Bowie as Ziggy Stardust, you need to Google that right now. The Ziggy character was an alien and a rock star and did not have a gender. He sort of wore Japanese-style clothing when, when playing Ziggy. And Bowie even did interviews as Ziggy. It all came together. This whole presentation. He had big hits. He created buzz. And initially, I think he had fun with it. I'm an David Bowie would later say that it worked too well. Keep in mind that he was still a young man at the time that he created Ziggy Stardust. He's only in his mid-twenties. And unlike Beyonce, Bowie was fully committed and never turned it off. It was all Ziggy all the time. He was getting into drugs, and between those drugs and the success and the constant role-playing, he sort of lost track of himself. He lost contact with that core that I mentioned earlier. And with the sudden rise to fame, it could have benefited him to be grounded, emotionally, spiritually, whatever. But he was not. The door when it comes to alter egos, swings both ways. It was playful and it was camp and it was just over the top with Ziggy. Um, but as drugs started to take a, 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 a more severe hold on my life, the, 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 the ability within your conscious mind to actually uh, deliver yourself into two separate parts disappears and the lines blur and it's only this one formless mutant that's left, left behind. So it gets quite messy in there. It gets very messy in there. And uh, by the mid-70s, I was so, uh, so out of my gourd that really it was very impossible. It was all nigh on impossible for me to function in, in any rational way. So I didn't know I was playing characters at that time. <laughs> Ziggy Stardust was an insane success. The album sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Two massive singles, Starman and Suffragette City. It's now routinely ranked as one of the best albums ever. David Bowie would be associated with Ziggy for the rest of his life. Long after he shook off the character. Think about this. He only did one Ziggy album. He only did one Ziggy tour. Top to bottom... It lasted about a year and a half. There was a period after, we, we were only together for 18 months. The whole thing was over in 18 months, the whole Ziggy Stardust thing. Um, and a good halfway through, nine, ten months into it, I knew it was over already and I, I just wanted to move somewhere else. There's a new kind of music. I wanted to write something, a different kind of theatricality I wanted to bring into it. Uh, the last few months, I was really like treading water. I couldn't wait to finish. Here's 
someone else who had success after creating an alter ego, it's Eminem. Eminem's alter ego is Slim Shady. He uses Shady like Beyonce uses Sasha to get pumped up. So when you hear Eminem be outrageous, that's Slim Shady. Eminem is the rapper. Slim Shady will kill you. And Marshall Mathis is the person like behind the whole, you know, mask or whatever. That's the way I see it. It's a formula that, as I say, has worked. Eminem has sold more than 220 million albums. That makes him one of the most successful recording musicians ever. He owes a lot of that success to the Slim Shady character. Here he is elaborating on what makes Slim Slim. And Slim Shady is me when I get pissed off, so to speak. You know what I mean? It's kind of like an alter ego type thing. You're driving, you see somebody on the road, and they cut you off. And all of a sudden, you just bam! You start screaming at them. Fuck you! What the fuck are you doing? You know what I mean? You start honking at them, flipping them off. Yeah, fuck you. You know what I'm saying? That's Slim Shady. Okay, now let's, let's pump the brakes. Because creating an alter ego is... It is an iffy thing. Beyonce, Bowie, Eminem... All had success with it. But success is not guaranteed. So who crashed and burned with their alter egos? Who crashed and burned? We're going to start with Snoop Dogg. Let's go back to 2012 when he created the alter ego Snoop Lion. Remember, alter egos are used to get someplace new artistically. And Snoop changed up his entire genre. He quit rap and he started making reggae music. If you missed it, here's a taste. Ain't no dividing, that's what you's the destiny. And we don't need no negative to get the best of me, yeah. Love and unity alone can get to me Or if a girl need me So if you know a lot of love is spread But you like to me Be a better day if you try and get a brighter love Get all you, stop the war, make no shots, no buzz Bust a bottle, make the vibes turn up Yeah, put your lighters up Yeah, get high with me, fly with me Ain't no dividing us East side, west side, north side, south side, unified The album was a flop. It peaked at, looked it up, number 16 on the Billboard album chart. Not great for one of the most bankable artists ever. Reviewers were not great to him either. Spen gave the album 4 out of, let's see, 4 out of 10 stars. Pitchfork gave it 5 out of 10. All Music gave it 2.5 stars out of 5. Uh, The Guardian gave it two stars out of five. So, it didn't work. It came and went, and most people didn't even notice. Now, they may have heard that he switched things up. He had a new name. 
but I doubt they heard the music. So here's Snoop Dogg, in his words, talking about the switch. Remember what we talked about earlier, about using an alter ego as a springboard creatively. So now, this is a, 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 this is a change musically for you, certainly. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and uh, how would you describe your body of work prior to this transformation? Gangster. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, and, uh, now, people laugh at that, but it really isn't all that funny, is it? No, it's not, because it was more or less the betrayal of what I live and, and the life I lived in the community that I came from. I came from selling drugs, being involved in a gang. So most of my music was representative of that. But then once I became successful, I strayed away from that and became a business and became who I am now. So mm-hmm. that's why the music is more representative of who I am today. That's from a conversation with David Letterman. And Dave seemed to sense that this new direction wouldn't take. But give Snoop credit. Because he was committed. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, Let's say that this music that represents more of who you are today is not as successful as the music that represented how you were years ago. It doesn't bother me. I'm not doing it for, you know, financial reasons or successful gain. Mm -hmm. It's more about where, where I'm speaking to facts and issues that, you know, like, for example, the gun issue. I have a song called No Guns Allowed that speaks directly to the issues of gun violence because I feel like that's real. I think it would be nice if uh, if that uh, took hold uh, across the uh, popular culture, really. Yeah, and you know, it starts with you. You got to be go- you got to be the man in the mirror to, to say, you know what, I'm gonna start with myself. And through example, I believe that people will follow. I believe that the right thing will be done because I'm one who used to lead people in the wrong direction. Now I'm leading them in the right direction. For the hell of it, here's a clip of that song, "No Guns Allowed." Uh, Drake is featured on this track. to be gone two more young names to be called out of stone one summer day that went horribly wrong got my dog on the phone crying and saying to leave him alone but i'm not leaving this side i know that somebody died somebody's child some people duck down and some people hide some people just cannot react in time bullets do not choose a victim it is a shooter that picks them not bad but within two years snoop was back to releasing music as snoop dog let's talk about garth brooks my guess is you've heard about his alter ego, Chris Gaines, but like Snoop, you may not have actually heard much of the music that he put out as the alter ego. Let's address that now. This song is called Lost in You.
So it's very 90s, not much country in there, but, but really it's not that far removed either. And people forget it actually did pretty well at the time, maybe due to curiosity. At any rate, it was a top five single. In the long run, Chris Gaines made Garth Brooks look ridiculous. Here's the story. The song came out in 1999. Garth Brooks was supposed to be in a movie called The Lamb. There was supposed to be a character that was a musician named Chris Gaines, and Garth was going to play him. So, Brooks got into character and released an album as the character in the lead-up to the movie. Except, the movie never came out. So, people were puzzled. And Garth Brooks, the most successful musician of the previous decade, had egg on his face. But, like Snoop, he owned it. Stephen Borov on Facebook, would you revisit the Chris Gaines concept? Maybe another album. Yeah, when my ribs heal up from the last one, (laughs) I got the (laughs) kicked out of me for doing that. That That was fun to do, though. But, you know, that, that I, would, I would love to do it. Those guys worked too hard for me, the guys in the pop world, because we were up till 3 or 4 every morning. Country music, we're at home, you know, eating dinner yeah. by 6. So <laughs> it's a lot easier yeah, gig. Country music, they eat, they eat dinner at 6. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk about bizarre alter egos. Let's talk about David Johansson. Legendary punk rock, hard rock, straight-up rock and roll performer, lead singer with the New York Dolls. They dressed in drag, they partied, and carried on. They were wild dudes. In order to appreciate David Johansson's alter ego, you first need to hear the music that he recorded prior to it. Here he is with the New York Dolls. And you're up Now, you wouldn't have known it at the time, but Johansson is an insanely artistic dude. And he had sort of this unique appreciation for old school showbiz. After going solo, he started making music under the alter ego of a Caribbean lounge singer named Buster Poindexter. And he had hits. I know, I know for a fact that you know this song. Bum, bum, bum. 
Let's compare again. Here, here's the New York Dolls. And now here's Johansson a few years later with Buster Poindexter. Now, I like Buster Poindexter um, because I'm in on the joke. Like, I, I, I get it. I see what he's doing. But if you aren't in on the joke, my guess is that this could have been really annoying. <laughs> here's, <laughs> here's Johansson explaining Buster Poindexter. If you just join us, we're talking to uh, Buster Poindexter. Now, that, that's your persona now, right? You did, as I mentioned, work... It's a nom de guerre. Yes. Nom de guerre, yeah. <laughs> Andy Kaufman, the late Andy Kaufman, used to work under Tony Clifton. He would go out and did it, and refuse to admit that at that time that he was not Andy Kaufman. Remember? He was Tony yeah, Clifton. Yeah, I recall that, yes. But you worked, David Johansson, with the, with the New York Dolls, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I switched that because, you know, I, I was a teenage band that I was yeah. in. And um, I got tired of officiating at, a, at Hitler youth rallies. You know, all the kids are out there like this. So I just decided I would do something a bit more mature and sing songs that I love from all times. Yeah. And how did you uh, glom onto Buster Point next year? Well, it's an old nickname of mine from when I was a kid. Why is she? I didn't know that. Um, they used to call me, my mother used to call me Buster, and the kids on the street, they would catch me at the library, so they would call me Poindexter. Right. You know how people like put the encyclopedia outside of a Playboy? Right. I used to do it the other way around. I'd have the Playboy and the encyclopedia on the inside. <laughs> Good. It throws them off. It did not last. Johansson did one more album as Buster. And eventually went back to the New York Dolls. He has since said that the song Hot, Hot, Hot is the bane of his existence. One more for you. You may not be aware of this. Nora Jones did a little time in a punk band. The band was called El Madmo. And she went by the name Maddie. They put out an album in 2008. This... This is a song called Vampire Guy. Don't go hiding like a 
let's hear a little bit more of that. Here we go. You should spend some time in the sun. Your face makes me want to run. Jones. Who knew? So creative types are full of contradictions. They want to define themselves, yet they don't want to be put into a box. They want to push the limits, but nothing is more important than staying true to oneself. The invention of an alter ego is a way to channel the contradictions. It's a way to channel the contradictions because they and we are a mess of them and creativity applied to those contradictions can be very appealing of course at the end of the day it can also just be an excuse to let yourself go it may (laughs) actually it may be just that simple I'll leave you with where we started. Here's Beyonce. Sasha is my alter ego. And when people see me, sometimes I think that when they meet me and they speak with me, they're expecting Sasha. And um, I'm really kind of shy and not really shy, but more reserved and... um, Nothing like Sasha. But I guess I wouldn't be very entertaining on the stage. So Sasha comes out <laughs> and she's fearless. You know, she can she can do things that I cannot do when I'm in rehearsal. All right, friends, you know that we are creating the most perfect playlist known to man. You can listen to our playlist at any point. By opening up Spotify and searching Stream Police Playlist every month, we add five new songs. And the first is A Wasted Life by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Second, it's somebody's gotta die by the notorious B.I.G. Stop the dogs from barking, then proceed to walking. It's a face that I seen before. My nigga sing used to sling on the 16th floor. Check it. I look deeper, I see blood up on his sneakers, and his fist gripped the chrome for fifth. So I dip, nigga. Is you creeping or speaking? He tells me C Rock just got hit up at the beacon. I opens up the door pitiful. Is he in critical retaliation for this one won't be minimal? Cause I'm a criminal. Way before the rap shit, bust the gat shit. Puff won't even know what happened if it's done smoothly. Silences on the Uzi, stash in the hoopty. My alibi, any cutie. With the booty that done fuck big pop. 
head spinning, reminiscing about my man C Rock. Somebody got to die. If I go, you got to go. Somebody got to die. Let the gunshots blow. Somebody got to die. Nobody got to know that I killed your ass in the mix. Somebody got to die. Third, it's my God by the Killers. Okay, now this is uh, this is another new one. This is Letter to You by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. They're doing this one live in the studio. Finally, it's harder to breathe by Maroon 5. How dare you say that my behavior is unacceptable? So condescending, unnecessarily critical. I have the tendency of getting very physical. So watch your step, cause if I do, you need a miracle. You dream me dying, make me wonder why I'm even here. The double vision I was seeing is finally clear. You know very well I want you gone Now fit the tread the ground that I am walking No, but when it gets cold outside I got nobody to love You'll understand what I mean when I say There's no way we're gonna give up And like a letter girl cries in the face So a monster that lives in her dreams Is there anyone out there Cause it's getting harder and harder to That's it. That's all I've got. Be good. Take care of yourselves. Clint's going to talk about Chadwick Boseman. Huge loss. So I'm going to toss it back to him. Peace. Hey, thank you very much, Andy. Can't wait for new... Bruce music, man. He's got a new album coming out again. Dude's been cranking them out. Maybe the uh, quarantine has been good for him. And uh, I like the cover of the new record. He hasn't had a really good album cover in a long, long time. But I, I really, really like the cover to this one. It's one of the 
one of the best he's had since the 1980s, back when his covers were always really good. But now, you know, lately, it's like, well, like the last 30 years or so, his album covers hasn't haven't been that good, but uh, this one is one of my favorites. So, anyway, thank you very much, Andy. Again, you can hit him up on Instagram at Andy Sedlak. All right, real quick, I wanted to uh, touch on the death of Chadwick Boseman because it just knocked me on my ass. It was one of those like we've lost some really big time celebrities this year, and COVID nineteen related or not COVID nineteen related, and. Andy and I talked at, at length about John Prine and how much he meant to the two of us. His is still, I mean, the one that, you know, really stings for me, especially in the COVID-related deaths. But uh, Chadwick Boseman is one of those celebrity deaths that really hit hard. And I think it hit everybody hard. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Number one, because this was a guy who was only 43 years old and he's dying of cancer, and he's, like, dying suddenly without anyone knowing that he was going through this illness. And cancer is one of those things that, you know, people are generally upfront about it, especially if they're famous. They pretty much tell everyone, and they, like, write some Instagram post. And I'm not trying to sound judgmental at all right now, by the way, of people who do that, because I think you probably do need all the moral support that you could possibly get if you're going through something like that. So they use their big platform of millions of followers to come out and say, hey, I'm, I'm battling cancer. And, and a lot of times it's to raise awareness. They're, they help raise money for other people who don't have that kind of platform. So it's a great thing. But Chadwick Boseman kept it so close to the vest. I mean, no one knew about this. And this guy was battling cancer for the last four, five years. And... He was, this was when his career took off. I mean, it was like right when his career took off, he gets this diagnosis that's going to, you know, bring the end of his life. And I just can't imagine the weight of that coming down on a guy who had worked so hard to get to where he was and to get these kind of roles. And, you know, he gets this, he gets his college tuition paid for by Denzel Washington, who believed in him, even though, you know, I mean, they weren't related or anything like that. Like Denzel didn't have any reason to do it other than he believed in this young guy. Um, and he just, he's got this great story. If you don't know anything about Chadwick Boseman, you should definitely look into it. He wasn't like, you know, this teen idol actor that was, you know, picked from a casting call because he had this great looking jawline or something like that. I mean, this was a guy who really busted his ass and, and got his break late in life as an actor um, and who was toiling away for a long time before he did get that uh, household you know, name kind of status. I mean, this was not an overnight flash in the pan celebrity in any means, but his career was very short at the top, very, very short. And uh, I think the when I read... Like, I thought it was a mistake. I looked at my phone. It was like 11 o'clock or so at night. And I was sitting up doing something. I was probably playing a game or something. And I had a notification. I think it was from the New York Times. And it said, you know, Black Panther star Chadwick Boseman has died at age age 43 of cancer. And I really thought there was some kind of mistake. I, I wasn't sure what... I thought maybe they were saying, like, he was diagnosed with cancer. Um... But I'm like, he didn't die. Like he, he didn't die of cancer. He didn't even have cancer, you know? And, and I could not believe it. I mean, it was like literally stunned me. It was, there was an audible gasp when I read that. And, uh, I was just crushed 
because it was just a guy who had so much potential that, you know, is never going to be realized. Anytime we lose those actors that we love so young artists of any kind, but actors, I just think, uh, you know, because we see them so often at their best and we see them on this big screen and they look immortal. And especially when they're playing roles like he was playing, I mean, the people that he played, the characters he played were so powerhouse. And that to me is reason number two, why I think Bozeman's death was so much more shocking than, a lot of celebrity deaths are because he played these larger than life, Titanic, immortal figures of pop culture. Just like that was like his job, like playing James Brown, you know, I mean, one of the most electrifying and just ridiculous characters in the history of the music business, which has been full of them. Um, and he played Jackie Robinson, one of the most uh, inspiring figures in sports history, a guy who is still constantly honored by his sport every single year with everyone in Major League Baseball wearing the number 42 on their jersey for one day out of the year. I mean, they don't do that for anybody else. Everyone doesn't wear Babe Ruth's number uh, on a, a day of the year, even though he's like the all-time god of the sport. They only do it for Jackie Robinson. There's a reason for that, because the guy went through so much bullshit to get to where he was, even though he was clearly one of the best players of his generation. So Bozeman plays Robinson. He plays James Brown. He plays uh, Thurgood Marshall. I mean, he plays these larger-than-life figures of American and black American history. Uh, And he did it like... He made it look easy. And then he plays Black Panther, a figure that's obviously not historical, but would end up becoming historical because of his performance uh, in part. And he was so... I think when I first reviewed Black Panther here on the show, I might have said something about Bozeman being just so quiet and so like strong, even though he wasn't fighting for you to look at him like he he wasn't stealing the show he he was almost like second banana in in the movie because michael b jordan was so like in your face as kilgore and he did and michael b jordan did a great job and he was just so insanely ripped and he, he just was like all over the screen he was all you could watch he was so magnetic but bozeman as black panther was just a picture of strength and was just a guy that you always knew was going to get it done because of the the confidence that he played the role with and the quiet confidence that he played that role with. And he just nailed it. And I think his performance is a big part of why that movie was such a cultural phenomenon. I mean, if, if you don't have the, the right lead performance, then the movie's not going to work. It doesn't matter how good the script is. doesn't matter how good the director is. doesn't matter how good Michael B. Jordan is as the villain. Um, you got to have that lead performance and he was the title character and he absolutely nailed it. So, uh, and that movie was just stunning. It it was nominated for a million Oscars. It made, you know, a couple billion dollars at the uh, box office and just was a a benchmark, a landmark for, uh, you know, minority representation on big budget tent pole movies like that. And uh, I think it's going to go down with him dying now. I think Black Panther is going to go down as even more of an important film than it already was. It was already one of the most important movies of the 2000s. And now, I mean, it vaults right toward the top of the list as far as legendary movies, legendary pieces of cinema. I think Black Panther now will be talked about for a long, long time, longer than these other Avengers, Iron Man Captain America movies for as good as they are at times and as enjoyable as they are. I think Black Panther is going to be the one that's talked about for a long, long time for many reasons. 
including the untimely death of his star. So Chadwick Boseman is a guy that just, I think, had so much more to do. Um, and I would have liked to have seen him get old. And I can just imagine him. He was one of those guys who seemed like, you know, it's kind of a worn-out cliche, but he seemed like an old soul, right? And I think it's why he was able to play these historical figures so well. And I think he just had that in him. He just was, those people lived in him, and he was able to bring them out. He was a very good actor. Uh, he wasn't a guy who was going to after you know, send you home like talking about his emotional highs and lows. And He wasn't an overactor in any way. He was kind of one of those guys that was bred to be a, a supporting actor from his schooling, I think. Uh, a character actor, I should say. But ended up becoming a lead because he was charismatic and because he was good looking. And, you know, he was just immensely talented. But I don't think he got enough credit when he was alive. Uh, for how good of an actor he truly was. I mean, think about the figures he played and, and think about the range it took. I mean, those, those guys, Jackie Robinson, James Brown, and Thurgood Marshall have like nothing in common with each other other than the fact that they're all titanic black figures uh, in these major fields that are you know so important to us in America. They don't really have anything else in common with each other as far as what their skill sets were to their jobs. So... And he was able to bring them all to life with, you know, no issue whatsoever. And and then Black Panther, again, this is a guy that has nothing to do with those other characters. Uh, but he made the part iconic. And uh, it was just so it was so depressing. If, as if this year wasn't bad enough to lose a guy like Chadwick Boseman that suddenly and to know that he had been going through this really just awful battle with such an awful disease for the entire time we knew him um just makes his career even more incredible now you go back and watch that stuff and i think it probably almost it's a little bit haunting really when you watch that stuff because you just knew uh i mean and this isn't a guy who died in some kind of like accident or because of some kind of bad choice he made or something like that as often happens with a lot of actors who die young this was a guy who just got the bad card, got the raw deal. And uh, it's, I think it was a big reminder of uh, my own mortality and our, all of our own mortality as well. I think it brought a lot of fears to the surface, and it was just a, a capper on this shit Sunday. Nice cherry on top uh, that is 2020. So the loss of Chadwick Boseman, huge loss. Uh, and if you for whatever reason, never got around to Black Panther, check it out on uh, Disney Plus because it's just a, it's a great movie. It's so cool and and uh, it's just very unique and it's just a fantasy, man. It's just a, great to imagine this world existing, Wakanda. Uh, and the way that Ryan Coogler brought it to the screen was so great. And Michael B. Jordan is fantastic. Everyone in it does a really good job. It's a, It's just a cool movie. A lot of heart went into it, which is not, often something you can say about those comic book movies but with black panther it really did so rest in peace to chadwick boseman gone way 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 too soon long may you run my man
And as you can see, I am not dead. Okay, so as I always like to do here uh, in the show, I like to tell you about the best thing I watched this month. I told you that my movie watching has been going, you know, has been dipping a little bit lately, so I haven't had the big pool that I usually have in a month's time. But I did watch uh, a pretty good amount of movies still this month. Uh, and one stuck out to me as the absolute best of the best that I watched. And that was Withnell and I from 1987, a, a British gym. And I have read that this has been, you know, this has been called like one of the most British movies ever made. And it's a, it's a landmark of like British indie cinema. Uh, like I said, came out in 1987. Um, and it was just a really uh, fun ride to take fantastic script everything felt so natural and real but also a little bit silly as only the brits are able to kind of pull that off um but really sad as well there's a very a big sadness that goes into this movie so with nell and i what it's about is uh there's a a guy who is like a struggling actor in britain has you know no money whatsoever these guys really are legitimately poor they're not like movie poor like they're really poor the way that the opening scene shows you and the main guy his name is literally and i uh he doesn't have a name he's not named in the in the movie and when the credits roll it's just and i um and withnell is his roommate they live together they're both struggling actors big time struggling actors uh, and the two of them decide to get out of town and go stay in uh, <laughs> a country home that is owned by Withnell's uncle, uh, who is a very interesting character himself. Um, and, and and they con their way into basically letting him stay at their country home for like a week or a weekend. I can't remember how long it is. It's only going to be for a few days. It's a, just a little vacation. And they have in their mind that this is going to be this great trip out there and they're going to get their creative juices flowing. They're going to come back and land all these roles that they've been trying and, and getting auditions for. But uh, when they get there, they realize it's like this little rundown shitty shanty shack uh, out in the middle of the rainy English countryside. And there's nothing glamorous about it whatsoever. And these guys don't know anything about like building a fire and getting some food and you know, keeping this place warm, keeping themselves dry, and it, it just turns into basically, uh, you know, a hellscape pretty quickly. But uh, they still manage to have some fun out there. So, anyway, it's this whole kind of odyssey between these two struggling actors, and uh, the whole thing just felt very natural. Richard E. Grant and Paul McGann are the actors who brought them to life, and and these are two very gifted actors who are at the start of their careers. Uh, and Richard E. Grant really steals the show as Withnell. Withnell is, is one of those characters that is instantly memorable and you feel like you've always kind of known him um, on screen, even though this is the first time you're watching the movie. So it, it was just a really cool movie. I had a lot of fun watching it. It was very funny uh, as well. Very British, though, I will say. Very dry uh, in its humor. And, and not all of it worked, but a lot of it did, and I really liked it. It's it's. Uh, I watched it streaming on HBO Max. I think it's still on there if you want to check it out. It's called With Nell and I. Turn the subtitles on, though, because you'll need them when you're watching those British movies. That's the best thing that I watched this month. Why don't you ask your father for some money? If we had some money, we could go away. Why don't you ask your father? It's going to be so cold in here. Like Greenland in here. We've got to get some boobs. It's the only solution for this intense cold. Something's got to be done. We can't go on like this. I'm a trained actor, reduced to the states of a bum. 
I mean, look at us. Nothing that reasonable members of society demand as their rights. No fridges, no televisions, no phones. Much more of this, I'm going to apply for Meals on Wheels. What happened to your cigar commercial? That's what I want to know. What happened to my cigar commercial? What happened to my agent? Bastard must have died. Okay, so movies now streaming for you on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and HBO Max. I always like to give you something funny and something serious. So here are some picks for you to add to your cues right away. On Netflix, something funny for you from 2005. The producers, Mel Brooks's, uh, you know, classic 1970s movie musical with Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel gets an updated version based on the smash Broadway version that starred Matthew Broderick uh, and Nathan Lane in the roles of two producers who are trying to produce the uh, biggest surefire flop in Broadway history so that they can keep all the investment money that they've raised uh, and, and scam their way into uh, getting rich by making the worst play in history. So uh, the producers, the original, is the new one, the 2005 one, is it better than the original? Probably not, but I still really like the 2005 one a lot. I remember seeing it in theaters and laughing my ass off all the way through, and I've rewatched it again more recently, and it's still you know very funny. To me, Lane and Broderick are just uh, perfect in these roles. Will Ferrell's a little much. Uma Thurman's a little bit much as well. But the whole thing's bawdy. It's Mel Brooks. Uh, it's it's just all very obvious and over the top. And I mean, it's not. It's got all the subtlety of a jackhammer. But sometimes that's that's all right. And Mel Brooks does that better than anybody. So very funny movie. The songs will stay in your head forever. Uh, they do mine anyway. And uh, when they do <laughs> debut the musical, the whole opening like when you see springtime for hitler which is the terrible musical that they are doing on broadway when you see springtime for hitler done uh on stage in the movie it is just so well done it's just perfectly directed and uh it's one of the great pieces of comedy uh of of all time i would say so the producers from 2005 right now on netflix very funny something serious for you i'm going to give you tinker taylor soldier spy from 2011 i when i gave you my 10 favorite movies of the last 10 years uh when the 2010s ended i put this movie at number two for the whole decade this was one of my absolute all-time favorite films it's one of those i rewatch every single chance i get usually once a year at least i sit down and watch this movie uh, and it's right now on Netflix for you, so it's going to look great, and it's just a, a fantastic cast. I think it's the best spy movie I've ever seen. Uh, the story can be a bit, little tough to follow uh, the first time you're watching it, so uh, I think on multiple viewings it gets better, but it's still it's a great movie the first time you watch it, and it's just the cast is incredible. Gary Oldman leads it right at the top, so I can't recommend it anymore. It's one of my very, very favorites, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy from 2011 now on netflix all right on amazon prime video something funny for you how about 1986 is back to school with rodney dangerfield uh playing the old man going back and and uh, trying to get his college diploma going to school alongside his son uh and raising all kinds of hell on campus this was in that vein of you know college movies that were huge hits in the 1980s in the wake of animal house uh and back to school is a really funny kind of underrated one uh, one of the best parts about it, Dangerfield's flawless from top to bottom, but Sam Kennison plays the uh, history teacher uh, at the uh, history professor, I should say, at the school. And he gives one, him and Dangerfield give one of the great back and forth scenes you'll ever see in a movie. So it's worth watching back to school just for the Kennison Dangerfield scene in the classroom. 
uh, just great stuff. But Dangerfield's really good. He, he carries the whole movie. It's a, a great star vehicle for him. Uh, Back to School from 1986. Give it a watch. Nothing serious. That's not, that's nothing serious whatsoever in that movie. Uh, something serious for you, though, on Amazon Prime. How about 1979's Kramer vs. Kramer? Best Picture winner that year? Uh, a movie that I hadn't seen until last year. I finally sat down and watched it and uh, loved it. Beautiful, tender character film uh, with great performance for, with a great performance from Dustin Hoffman, uh, who was given a lot of them. This is one of his best. Uh, Meryl Streep in a, an early role for her, very good as well. She doesn't have a, a lot of screen time, but she really uses it well. A very good father-son movie. Not a whole lot of those always. Single father and son. Um, and a, a great movie about divorce. Uh, one of the, the first ones to really hit divorce hard and, and how hard that is to go through. And not just all the stupid jokes about how much the attorneys cost and how much money you're going to lose, but the real weight of what goes into getting a divorce, especially when there's a child involved. So uh, Kramer versus Kramer is uh, a, a very good movie, weighty movie, I think worthy of the Best Picture trophy when it came out. It's one of the rare small movies to win the Best Picture Oscar. So uh, pretty. the 70s were a fantastic decade for Best Picture winners. The, it, really fantastic. 60s, not so much, but the 70s, a lot of great Best Picture winners that decade. And Kramer versus Kramer ends the decade in style. So that is on Amazon Prime for you right now. How about on Hulu? Something funny for you. You know what? I never get tired of this movie. 1991's City Slickers with Billy Crystal... The late, great Bruno Kirby. Talk about another guy who died young of cancer, who was immensely talented and and so warm on screen. Uh, And, of course, Jack Palance as uh, the immortal Curly in this movie. City Slickers is just one of those great premises. Like, the movie was going to work no matter what because the premise is so good of these guys from New York going off to like a dude ranch because they have all these fantasies from watching westerns as kids and they're going to be cowboys for like a weekend and then everything of course goes to hell uh, while they're out there it's just a great premise pulled off really well Billy Crystal is is uh, is fantastic in this movie all the way through and like I said Bruno Kirby man he, he's the I think he's the straw that stirs the drink in this movie Palance and Crystal are very good but without Kirby I don't think this movie's nearly as likable so City Slickers, if you have never seen it, watch it. One of the seminal 90s comedies. It's uh, right now on Hulu. Just a funny movie. You will laugh your ass off and you'll have fun watching it. Good movie to uh, have some drinks with. Slam some drinks while you're watching it as well. Uh, and something serious for you on Hulu. How about uh, Grizzly Man from 2005? Werner Herzog, uh, one of his darkest documentaries, and he's done a few of them. This movie is terribly sad. Take some tissues with you, but it might make you mad as well because it, it's just this film is really about obsession and how dangerous it can be. And in the case of Grizzly Man, it gets a guy killed. Uh, and that is uh, this nature documentarian who spent his life going out and living near grizzly bears and filming them and trying to learn about them. And he was so obsessed with learning about them and getting close to them that he risked his own life and ended up paying dearly for it. Uh, and Grizzly Man gets into why he did it, why he went out and put himself in danger like that and the reactions of his family. And it's just a very good character piece of documentary filmmaking by one of the all-time masters, Werner Herzog. So that is now 
on Hulu for you. Grizzly Man from 2005. And finally, let's talk HBO Max here. Something funny for you. From 1985, After Hours by Martin Scorsese. One of Scorsese's most underrated gems. This one was bought for me on DVD by Andy Sedlak, none other than... Um, a while ago he bought me this movie it took me forever to get around to it it had kind of always been on my list but i just kept putting it off and then i finally watched it and i loved it i was like what took me so long to watch this movie you talk about a film that zips along i thought the script for this movie was immaculate and it is a master class in pacing um it's just there's so many different crazy things happening in this movie it's like one night one hellish night for a guy in New York City who's just trying to get home. He's just trying to get across town to get home. And it takes him all night. And he runs into all these issues as he's trying to do it. Uh, and everyone's trying to get in his way. And every situation is trying to stop him. But he's just trying to get home. Uh, and it's just a, a wonderful movie. It's totally unique in Scorsese's canon. And uh, he had fun making it, I think. But it's just this kind of like coked out 1980s New York movie. Uh, that's got so much attitude and character and is so funny. Uh, it's got great music in it as well, and it's just a, a cool movie, After Hours from 1985. Check it out on HBO Max because that's a hard one to find Like if you're looking for it, a hard copy of it. So uh, I take advantage of it while it's streaming and, and give it a watch. Also, something serious for you on HBO Max. There's a lot of good choices for you, but I'm going to give you 1973's Badlands. And this one uh, starring a very young Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek as they go across uh, the country, basically, uh, on a little bit of a crime spree after they kill her father. They're like these young people in love. She's an underage girl, and he's a little bit of an older, like, teenage or early 20s loser kind of type and ends up sucking her into this life, and they kind of go across the country together, evading the police. Um, and it's a very powerful movie. Blew me away when uh, I watched it for the first time. It was one of those instant five-star, like, instant classics for me uh, when I checked it out for the first time. I think also last year was the first time I watched it. So uh, give Badlands a watch. I think you'll really, really like it, especially if you like character exploration and if you like... Um, just to see great acting, because Spacek and Sheen are just incredible in this movie. The script is also very, very good. A lot of uh, profound stuff in this movie. But Badlands from 1973 right now for you on HBO Max. It's a very, very good movie. So there you go. There's some additions to your queue. Don't say I never did anything for you, my friend. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I'm always glad to sit with you here in my closet in Columbus and talk to you about movies and TV. Uh, follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis and send me an email at theclintdavis at gmail.com. You can follow Andy at Andy Sedlak. You can email him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. Until next time, my friend, stream on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.